This talk is offered by Ordinary Minds Zen teacher Andrew Tutel. Andrew is an Australian Dharma heir of Barry Majid and is dedicated to extending Barry's vision of a psychologically minded Zen practice adapted to the needs of students practicing in the context of their everyday lives. Find out more at ordinarymind.com.au. Andrew's Zen teachings are made possible by donations from people like you. So today, I, I, it's, it's, I just wanted to give um, a kind of, um, say a few things about Buddhism, really, and, um, and sort of mention a little bit about the kind of study program for Ozen this year. And um, I'd, I'd like to start by talking about, uh, I received a very uh, a complimentary email yesterday from a friend and student. Uh, and he said, quote, the website looks really good, by the way. So much to watch, listen to, read. I don't know where to begin. And um, I thought that was an excellent question. Um, the, the Buddha Dharma is vast. It's like an ocean of teachings. Um, the what they call the sutras or suttas in Buddhism, the recorded sayings of the Buddha, Buddha Chana, um, the commentaries on the recording sayings of the Buddha. I don't know how many Bibles it would fill, but it'd be more than one Bible. There'd be hundreds of Bibles probably of, of, of Buddhist scriptures. Like Western philosophy, Buddhist philosophy has lots and lots of different schools, uh, lots and lots of different interpretations of what the Buddha taught. And um, so I always feel very, very humble um, in my role here as a teacher. And by the way, in terms of the kind of language we use, um, you know, sometimes I refer to students of the, in the Dharma. I'm a student of the Dharma. We're all students of the way. I just happen to occupy a role as teacher for a certain period of time. Um, as long as you're happy with me, you can continue to have me. Otherwise, you can get rid of me and get another one. Um, and um, teachers are just students as well. And uh, I only speak and read in English. You know, I, I feel very, um, um, uh, very much a beginner and uh, in, this, in this practice and in these teachings, which are vast. Um, if anybody wants to learn Japanese, we have a Japanese teacher in the corner here, Larry. <laughs> or Gambanya, even. And, um, um, you know, to learn really, uh, the culture of China or Japan or India, we don't really understand the culture, I guess, unless you learn the language. And, uh, and we, you know, we are dependent upon translations into English. And uh, apparently the word for translator in Italian is traitor. So all translators really are traitors to the actual original text, but we, we do what you can. And Larry himself is a, is, is, has been translating and uh, has actually translated the, the four great vows into Gumbanga, which will we will try and uh, introduce into our practice sometime this year. Uh, 
So there are lots of exciting aspects of um, Ozen, uh, trying to create a unique uh, Australian flavor to Ozen practice. And we all do that together. And, uh, and uh, we're all creating it as we go along. And hopefully we can, we can pass this on to future generations. So as I was saying, this, 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 this vast diversity in Buddhism, so the question of where to start is a really excellent question. It's so easy to get lost. And, uh, you know, um, and other questions, is Zen a form of Buddhism? Is Buddhism a philosophy or a religion? Is it both a philosophy and a religion? Um, so before we get to Zen, let's talk a little bit about Buddhism. Um, so who can tell me, like, um, let's start with who the Buddha was and uh, what was the central concern of the teachings of the Buddha, Katan and Siddhartha. So who can tell me who the historical Buddha was? Yes, yeah. yeah. And the, um, I guess my simple understanding, I don't have any positive thing to do with suffering. I don't have any negative suffering. Yeah. So, um, guitar, guitar, sometimes called you sometimes see Shakyamuni Buddha. Shakya was the family that he came from, a noble family. And, um, and um, as Phil said, he uh, was raised in palatial kind of uh, context and uh, was protected from all different kinds of harm until one day he, as the myth goes, he climbed over the palace wall and discovered old age, sickness and death, much to his aghast. And, uh, and from that moment onwards, pledged to himself or committed to himself, he would uh, try and find a way of uh, understanding this and freeing us from this kind of suffering. But as I was saying before, this, 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 this word suffering, this actually comes from the word dukkha. Most Buddhist philosophers and teachers often just keep the word dukkha. And there's very good reasons why we should probably use the word dukkha rather than suffering. Because um, um, it's really, uh, dukkha is a very ambiguous kind of concept. It's, uh, it, 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 it means much more than just suffering, and we all have different sort of kind of meanings of suffering. And you can try anguish or distress or discontent or but like it's, it's pointing towards something a little bit different. And um, So, if, so dukkha, dukkha does include everything that we struggle with in life, like you know the usual things, um, such as um, you know physical pain and uh, and mental pain, um, health issues. It includes all of that. Um, it also includes things like um, the, the what's called the dukkha of change, which we're all familiar with. Um, 
the Duca of change, meaning, of course, we all know that um, the days are ticking by and we're getting, we're getting, you know, progressively older, each one of us. And, um, you know, uh, failing health and uh, something that we're all going to have to face up to as we get older. Change, constant change, um, people around us change. Uh, people around us get sick. Um, it's uh, even the dukkha of you know uh, things might be going really well, uh, but the even even the the notion of the impermanence of happiness and uh, the impermanence of things being as they are, um, or even the dukkha of you know being concerned about the the the, the, the lack of well-being and lack of safety for many people on the planet or the, 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 the dukkha of the planet itself and uh, so this, 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 this notion of dukkha is really all pervasive and, um, and so in a way um, it's going to be impossible to free ourselves from, from all of that kind of dukkha um, and so I think in the, in, in the teachings of what came to be called the Four Noble Truths, that life is suffering, the life is dukkha, he also pointed to um, the cause of dukkha. So he started to get a little bit more um, precise in the teaching as to what, it, what is it we can free ourselves from. This is where the notion of the nirvana and the bana comes from, the sense of the blowing out of the flame or the extinguishment or the freedom from, or the releasing from dukkha. And um, so I don't think by that he means that we're always going to be free of pain, for example. So um, being human beings and being bodies, we're always going to sometimes experience pain. Um, so it's, it's more, I think, what, what the teachings are pointing towards is more about our relationship to uh, uh, to um, dukkha and how the actual way we see reality and the way we see the world generates a kind of what you might describe as a psychological dukkha or a psychological suffering, the sense in which the teachings point towards we instinctively tend to see the world in the exact opposite to the way it is. So even though there's a lot of diversity in Buddhism, the three things it had in common, all the teachings have in common, and they'll have different interpretations of it, whether you're Tibetan, Zen, um, Theravada Buddhist, they'll all point to the three common elements or commitments that Buddhism has in terms of the teaching about reality. And that is impermanence, interdependence, and the lack of any inherent existence. And we apply that, Buddhism applies that to everything. There's slight distinction between Theravada Buddhism and Mahayana Buddhism, where Theravada Buddhism um, teaches uh, a kind of what they call dharmas, which are kind of like really small elements that don't change, but everything else changes and reduces to those basic elements. Um, but in Mahayana Buddhism, uh, which um, developed around about the same as Theravada Buddhism as well, I mean, after the Buddha died, there was a couple of, there was a council, 
and they put down the rules of the monastics, and then there was a couple more councils. Then by about the first century BC, um, um, the, the Mahayana teachings were developing as well as Buddhism spread from India through into China and so on. And um, the Mahayana teachings is that there's, there's, there's nothing's permanent. It's, and what, when you come across the word emptiness and emptiness teachings, like the word prajna, paramita, prajna, the wisdom teachings in Mahayana Buddhism talks about the emptiness teachings. Emptiness simply means this interdependence of everything. There is not one thing that really exists, whether it be a person, whether it be an animal, whether it be an object. Everything is interconnected, in flux, in flow, if you like. There's nothing solid and there's nothing permanent. And there's nothing that's truly exists independently of anything else. Unfortunately, um, as we grow up as human beings, and our culture affirms this, and our language affirms it, is that we don't see the world in that way. We see the world as we see ourselves as being permanent. We see ourselves as being independent, and we see ourselves as having some kind of uh, uh, existing self, like an independently existing self. And so what Buddhism argues is that it's this false view, it's this way in which we see the world upside down which creates the, duk the dukkha that we can do something about. And also when we start to get an insight into, the, into, into emptiness and into no self, it also helps us to deal with the, su the suffering of everybody else and also things like pain as well. Um, so the realization in Buddhism, like the insight or the wisdom or the understanding that everything is impermanent and dependent, leads to the unfolding of deep care and compassion for ourselves and others in the world. Because uh, from the Buddhist point of view, there is no separate person. So um, the compassion flows because we're all interconnected. And um, so even though you will find quite different interpretations maybe even of, of some of those teachings, in essence, that's the, uh, the kind of paradigm of Buddhism, the, the kind of the three things that, or the four, the four commitments that most Buddhists agree to. So the impermanence, interdependence, the lack of the inherently existing self, and um, and the fourth one is this notion of nirvana, which is the, uh, the extinguishment or the reduction in dukkha from our understanding, our insight into that. So the, the fourth noble truth was the path that leads to the nirvana, the extinguishment of dukkha. And that can be broken down into three trainings, the wisdom trainings, the meditation trainings, and the ethical trainings. Um, and so that's just bringing basically the wisdom and compassion working together. And so all Buddhist um, 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 practice centers bring these three different trainings together. So, you know, wisdom, Prajna, 
can arise directly and non-conceptually from our meditation practice, or sometimes even when you're not meditating. There's lots of stories in the Buddhist world about monks or lay people having insights into, 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 into emptiness. And so, but wisdom can also be facilitated through the studying of the, the sutras and the commentaries on the sutras. And uh, even though Zen teaches it's a form of Buddhism which, is, which doesn't rely on the sutras, in fact, you'll still find in Zen lots of commentaries on sutras and lots of word teachings. And so there are different kinds of meditations or, or philosophical debates in Tibetan Buddhism that Buddhists enter into to try and actually bring about that, this insight and f into interdependence and the non-existence of an independent self to release us from suffering. Um, one of the differences between the Mahayana tradition and the is the, and so the Theravada school is that the the notion of the Aharat and the Theravada school was the the noble one who was released from suffering and gets off the cycle of rebirth. Um, uh, and total extinguishment never gets reborn again. A lot of Buddhists, you know, again, these are some of the differences in the Buddhist, you know, pantheon. Like a lot of Buddhists actually adhere literally to a rebirth into other lives. And there are different ways they argue for that in terms of, well, if you have no self, what, what is it that gets, you know, reborn? But in a sense, we, in, our, in this life, we're being reborn every moment. We're birthing every moment. And there's no, there's no independent, separate entity that's being reborn. It's like a like patterns that are being reborn, um, and um, and so a lot of Buddhists believe that goes from one life to another. Other Buddhists don't. We don't necessarily have to adhere to that to be a Buddhist. Um, although some Buddhists would disagree with that. So as I said, not all Buddhists agree. Um, but most Buddhists also take refuge. We call the Triple Gem. Take refuge in Buddha Dharma Sangha. And sort of like the teach that like the Buddha, you take take refuge in the inner Buddha, or the, the Buddha guides you to the refuge, the teachings teach you the refuge, and uh, and the Sangha supports us in doing that, and they all work together. You know, refuge is something you can create your own meanings about. It's um, but basically obviously there's a there's a relationship between this notion of refuge and nirvana, freedom from dukkha. And uh, so in our meditation practice, when we're talking about, you know, calmly abiding in an object which is changing all the time or calmly non-abiding in this just general sense of impermanence, and finding refuge in this world amidst dukkha and uh, bringing that sense of release and peace into the world to share with other, other beings. And uh, so in the Mahayana tradition, it talks about the Bodhisattva path, which is the path that because there's no such thing as a separate individual, then every, everybody has to be released from suffering or nobody's released from suffering. So that's when we chant in the vows to liberate all beings from suffering because we're not separate from all beings. And um, so what about Zen? So how did Zen originate? Um, does anybody want to just say a quick word about that, your knowledge of Zen? Um, do you think it's a, um, a Buddhist school or does anybody know much about the origins of Zen practice? 
Um, you know, we've talked a lot about the legendary Bodhidharma. Um, but Buddhism was established in China by about the first century. And by about the third or fourth century, when Bodhidharma came and founded what's called the Chan school in China, um, Buddhism was always firmly established in China and had taken on a particular Chinese flavor as it fused with the uh, neo Taoists at the time. And so a lot of um, Chan Buddhism incorporates Taoist uh, words. So like when we talk in, in Zen, we might talk about the way, that's the Tao, that's a, that's a, it comes from Taoism. And uh, in a way, um, um, the, 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 the Zen Buddhism, Chan Buddhism in China was kind of like, um, took on a unique flavor because of the, the Chinese culture and, and Chinese Taoism. Very much in the same way that Dharma in the West takes on a unique form in being uh, informed by psychotherapy or by developmental science or by science in general. And um, so the other aspect of, 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 of all Buddhisms is this, uh, what we call the ethical practice. And uh, ethical practice is, is laid down in lots of different Buddhist schools. They're called the 16 Great Precepts, uh, taking refuge in the Buddha Dharma Sangha, the three pure precepts, and what are called the 10 of sort of applied precepts, which are really about witnessing or shining the light how we we, we engage in our everyday life with ourselves and with others in our relationships. And uh, the various precepts um, are like beacons which light up different areas of our life, uh, whether it be looking at witnessing violence and abuse in the world or witnessing the ways in which we talk to each other in the world. And so these are all the ways in which we bring our meditation practice. And, and the precepts also form a kind of Often in many Buddhist schools, um, they, the study of the precepts, which is often done over six, a six-month period, leads to what's called a jukai ceremony, which is kind of like a commitment to taking up the Zen Buddhist path. And uh, at the end of that process, people get given a, a, what's called a rakasu, which is a symbol of the Buddhist robe, which is what I'm wearing today. Um, the uh, what in, in, in many ways, this uh, we'll be offering precept study group this year to give you an opportunity to actually make sense of make sense out of that yourself. What does it mean to practice as a Buddhist, or do I identify as a Buddhist? Uh, will I take a jukai ceremony or not? And, and these are questions we all have to. We'll all be kind of like different in that sense and working through that. So one of the reasons why I've starting the precepts group this year on Zoom is to uh, limit it to 12 people for anyone who's interested it, to work through that. And there's, there's no pre-commitment to doing the Jukai ceremony, but you might, through that process, want to do that ceremony. Um, so there's a lot more I could say, but I'm going to go into question and answer now because I, I learned last year that I talked for too long and um, so let's open up the Q&A. So feel free to ask any questions about Buddhism, about Zen, um, including guys on Zoom. Um, and um, if there's anything you're confused about or don't quite understand, or any questions you have about the Zen study program, which I sent out by email. Uh, Andrew, could I just jump in with a uh, request, more than a question? Go on, Matthew. Um, when you get questions from inside the room, could you uh, say those questions? So, because I don't hear the people in the room, so if you could 
repeat those, it would be a great help. Yeah, okay. Thank you. Yeah, so sure, sure. Uh -huh. Okay, from China. So uh, the question is, uh, how did we get to Ozen or Australians? And not you don't just mean our organisation, but the question was, Matthew, how did we get to Australians then? So after Zen took roots in uh, in China, um, it was passed over to Japan, and. Uh, there's a few Japanese people would visit China and some Chinese people would visit Japan. And uh, so um, the Zen school became established in Japan um, and uh, flourished there. And um, basically most of the Western Zen, not all, but most of Western Zen comes from Japan. There's a few tributaries from Taiwan and uh, and Korea, but most of it comes from Japan into the into the West, and that happened in the 1960s, and uh, when we had uh, Japanese teachers like Shunru Suzuki, who established the San Francisco Center, Mazumi Roshi, who established the Los Angeles Center, who was Joko Beck's teacher, and other Japanese teachers who came to the United States. In Australia, the, uh, there was a man called uh, Robert Aiken who studied with the Japanese teachers in Japan and Hawaii. He lived in Hawaii. The Sydney Zen group, Zen group was established in the, I think, the middle 70s. The Sydney Zen Centre was the first Zen centre in Australia. And uh, Robert Aiken became the first teacher for the Sydney Zen Centre, and that's how the, the Dharma was, the Zen was planted in, uh, in Australia. So any other questions about Zen or Buddhism, anything that you get puzzled about or are not quite sure about? Or... Um, Andrew, I'm not clear about how Zen would be practiced in Canada. Well, it's... Um... Oh, yeah, sorry, sorry, I love you. The question was... Um... Again, it was on the origins of Zen. How did Zen originate? How did Zen originate? So how did Chan originate? So it originated in China. Um, it was also following from the, um, the... There's a very famous sutra in the Zen Buddhist tradition, but it's also famous in Tibetan Buddhism as well, called the Heart Sutra, which we'll be studying this year. That's the one that goes, you know, form is emptiness, emptiness is form. And one of the characters in that is the, is the, is the Bodhisattva called Avalokiteshvara, who sometimes appears in male form, sometimes in female form. Bodhisattva of compassion. Now, the current historical research indicates that that particular sutra originated in China about 100 and uh, along, at the same time, there were other Mahayana teachings developing and uh, in India. One of the famous teachers there was a guy called Nagarjuna who taught the emptiness teachings and uh, established the Middle Way School that's very strong in Tibet. And following him, there was also a couple of half-brothers, Asanga and Vasubandhu, who established what's called the Yogacara School 
And there was a number of Chinese sutras as well that taught this kind of Mahayana kind of approach to reality. And they were also present in China. So the only, the, the, the legend is and how much this was, you know, invented by people to, to justify the school that was established. Like the, the, the founding myth was the myth of Bodhidharma, who was an Indian um, uh, um, teacher, Brahmin, who came across. So the idea was that people would come from India, Buddhists would come from India into China. One of these people that came across into China started to sit, you know, in, and, and placed a great deal of emphasis on sitting meditation. And the, you know, the legend was he sat facing the wall in the cave for seven years or nine years or 11 years, whatever the story is, until people got interested in, and, and that they started to develop a, a separate school in China, which became known as the Chan School. So basically, it just, it just kind of like originated from Mahayana Buddhists coming from India into China. And then that sort of fusion with the Chinese already established spirituality, whether it be Confucianism or be it Taoism. And yeah, that's true. So um, Phil's just pointing out the importance of the relationship between Buddhism and um, the aristocracy or the uh, the governments of the time. And um, so there was a lot of government support um, of the various different Buddhist schools. It would have been the same in Tibet and India. Um, and that's where you, that's why often it gets, you get this natural competition between different, different schools. And, and, you know, when they write the teachings, you know, they're kind of like the best and everyone else is kind of like below them. And, uh, so you try and influence uh, influential people who have got resources that you've got the the best Buddhist teachings and um, and hope that person will then build a monastery for you or a, a temple. And uh, so there was a lot of competition for funds in those days, just like there is in these days. Um, Andrew, um, I was wondering, can you tell me or tell us, please, what what attracted you to the Zen tradition? Well, what was it about the Zen tradition that attracted you? That's a good question. Thanks, uh, thanks, Matthew. Um, okay, good one. Um, so initially, I was um, sometimes sitting with the Sydney Zen Centre, and then sometimes sitting with the um, the the Insight Meditation Centre in Medlo Medlo Bath, uh, which still which is still a nice centre in, in Sydney in the Blue Mountains. And so sometimes I was practicing in what you would call the Theravada tradition, which was uh, in those days in the Blue Mountains at Ben Labath, it was very strongly a Burmese tradition where the, the practice of Mahasi, Sayadaw Mahasi's style of meditation, where you do like a, and, uh, and then sometimes sitting with the Zen center. Um, two things really got me hooked in Zen. 
One was the reading the, the, two, the two books of Joko Beck that came out in the 80s. And given that my life was in pretty much in a lot of turmoil at the time, I found Joko's teachings you know, very uh, challenging and also um, showed me a path in a way to get through the kind of uh, relationship suffering I was going through at the time. And um, so I found her very accessible and always liked Joko, but she didn't teach in Australia. Um, so um, I continued sort of independently, really. I didn't really, uh, I, 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 I could, it, my life just moved around. I, I did sit with different Zen centers, sat with the Adelaide Zen Center um, uh, as well. Uh, but uh, finally I met Barry, met Barry Majid, and, and because Barry was interested in psychotherapy as well, and I was a, you know, a, a new young psychotherapist at the time, and I enjoyed his book, and he was a, a Dharma successor of Joko Beck's, so it kind of like made sense. So it was, it was more the connection with the teacher more than anything else that um, established me in my Zen Buddhist practice. But I enjoy lots of aspects of the insight tradition and the, the various Tibetan schools are really interesting. I, I find the whole of Buddhism quite, quite fascinating. Just so happened that I ended up uh, uh, in Zen. Another probably explanation for that is that I, I did often find that simplicity of just coming back to Zazen and just sitting and leaving the leaving the text alone sometimes I, I can I, I can get carried away with intellectual stuff often and I enjoy you know reading philosophy but it, but it, it needs to it needs to be in a philosophy to work for me now it needs to be very much applied very much therapeutic and there is a tradition in philosophy that has different names liberation philosophy or dialectical philosophy which is all about transforming life and self and society rather than just philosophy for the sake of philosophy. But initially though I did I did really enjoy the simplicity of Zen. It was a, it was a gave me a refuge from having to read and trying to figure things out and just sit and shut up and be quiet. Can I so Andrew sorry. <clears throat> sorry. I oh, no, I just wanted to ask about Barry. Um is he in New York? Mm-hmm. Or is he here somewhere? Barry lives in New York, yeah. He's currently in the mountains of, of New York, not in the city. Like many people, uh, because of COVID, the Zen Center, Barry's Zen Center in New York is only on Zoom at the moment. You're always quite welcome to join. I mean, um, Michael sometimes joins uh, in, the, in Barry's I'm not quite sure what time it is. Uh, Michael, what time is it? 10 o'clock in um, Saturday morning in New York. What time is it here? Uh, I can't hear you. It doesn't matter. You're muted. That's fine. But anyway, if you're interested, you can also you know, check out other Barry's uh, broadcasts live on Zoom as well. Andrew, I wanted to ask, pick up on that word that you use, refuge, and you used it again in, in your answer there, that, that it provided a refuge. And it, 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 it's kind of uh, ringing a, a, a memory of, um, I can't remember who said it or where I read it, but that um, uh, the nirvana part was included because 
um, perhaps nobody would come to uh, or would listen to a person saying life includes suffering and, and that focus that, that there had to be a hook and that hook was the nirvana piece and that the word, the word refuge to me implies uh, safety and, um, and I guess it, it kind of linking to, you know, the, the how we come to Buddhism is often through that suffering you mentioned in the turmoil and this desire to escape suffering, which sets up that dualism, right? Rather than the, rather than the, I guess the witnessing or the presencing around the suffering. That that it that it's almost like I, I want to, I, I want to go. Uh, Buddhism is is the answer to why I suffer, and and therefore I, I won't suffer. Does that does that make sense? So you know, you, you mentioned like how, uh, refuge can be what you want it to mean, and I wonder if it if that taking refuge piece plays into that, that curative fantasy of wanting to get rid of the suffering and just keep the, the pleasantness. Okay, thanks, Jed. Uh, when, when Jed refers to a curative fantasies, that's one of Barry's uh, nice teachings. Uh, in a sense, you know, Barry argues, and to a certain degree I agree with him, that most of us, when we're looking for a teaching or spirituality or a philosophy, you know, we come to it because of the distress that we're in or the, 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 the sense in which we feel lost. Or, and, uh, and, and, and I think it's fairly inevitable that at first that would be more about ourselves than in anybody else. And um, so, yeah, that is, there is that sort of duality that you start off with, that um, somehow looking for a cure for this self that doesn't really exist, only convention. But, um, uh, but that's that's almost yeah. That, I mean, that's I don't think it's possible to start without that. And even though Buddhism does talk about the emptiness of everything, it does say that things are conventionally real. So you are conventionally real, and you do suffer, and other people do suffer. And if if you want to talk about that as the metaphor of the dream, because when it comes to the you know caught in the self-centered dream. This idea that we're the center of the universe, uh, that, or that there's a sort of subject-object duality, uh, that's what creates the suffering. But most of the time, most people are, are living in that dream, and we are most of the time as well. And, and um, so, it, it is also about developing, you know, skillful means of of of, of alleviating suffering in that dream. Uh, even though to cut through the dream totally is is something that we uh, we are. Uh, um, we would like to do, and, and maybe we cut through it sometimes, but uh, it, it, does, it does come back all the time. So it's a kind of practice that's ongoing, and uh, we get plenty of opportunities to to see how we're caught in the dream all the time. You know, so even when I come here, I get nervous about you know presenting something, and will it get all go all right? And who am I really worried about when I'm starting with me, right? So there's there's a sense in which that sense of a me in here. It's, it's very difficult to shake off, and uh, but you know, Joko and Barry have given us excellent uh, teachings as to how we work with that um, in our everyday lives. So eventually, it becomes not just about me, but then it becomes about we see that it's about the interconnection, the interdependence, that my happiness is dependent upon your happiness, and vice versa, and so on. Yeah. We're getting near the end. One more, one more. Anything, anyone else got one sort of question that 
something that's a bit puzzling or a bit confusing or uh, yeah, Bronyu. Same. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Good. Uh, Bronya's just asked about a question about the precepts. Um, and are this, um, they are, you'll, you'll find them in Tibetan Buddhism. Most of Mahayana Buddhism, you'll find the precepts and uh, the 16 precepts. Yeah. Um, and you'll have different um, understandings of the precepts. You, you, uh, there's a kind of conventional understanding of the precepts, you know, in terms of, you know, you know, you know not hurting each other and, and so on. There's the kind of understanding of the precepts from the, the point of view of emptiness as well, that the, the precepts really are just uh, an expression of what a Buddha, would, how a Buddha would express themselves. And there's other interpretations and uh, Barry Majid and uh, Malcolm Martin, who I'll be working with, have been developing a kind of idea of the precepts being about witnessing as well. So there, there are different interpretations of the precepts. But I'll, I'll just I'll just read out something that uh, Malcolm Martin wrote, because Malcolm will be facilitating with me. He goes, what are the precepts? The precepts are a door to developing our personal practice of Zen both as intimate experience and as action in the world, to developing our understanding of Zen in doctrinal and philosophical level, to understanding and living out the connection between these different aspects, we can break this down as follows. The precepts examine how we show up in the world. They develop our awareness of how we actually behave and the relationship of our behavior to our thoughts and feelings and to our resistance to life just as it is. This is the focus of much of Joko Beck's teaching and of Diane Rosetto's book. Diane Rosetto is um, an ordinary mind teacher, a Dharma successor of Joko as well, who wrote a book called Waking Up to Who We Are. This is the first kind of bearing witness to myself as I am in my complexity and contradiction. So in the first, the precepts encourage us in this notion, in this way to just, just to be aware of bear, of bear witnessing to ourselves what we're going through, how, how we, you know, the turmoil that we might be in or the behaviors that we engage in. And just, just witnessing them is a, is a really good start. And the precepts frame our understanding of how harming occurs within the world, as well as the causal mechanisms through which this comes about. We can use both contemporary social and psychological thought and traditional Zen ideas to develop this understanding. This is the second kind of bearing witness, to not turning away from the difficulties of the world and the need to speak out or act when appropriate. The precepts hence allow us to see how our personal desires, thoughts and actions articulate onto the larger social and environmental context to take this deeper. The precepts ask us to examine how our self-worlds in their current forms actually function, why we are beings who see and experience the world in the ways we do. They encourage us to understand both the conscious and unconscious forces at work in this framing and the relation of our views to the doctrinal and philosophical foundations of Mahayana Buddhism and so of Zen. The precepts show us in what ways Zen has an implicit ethical imperative 
and to explore how this might find expression through our practice. The precepts offer us a way of better understanding ourselves as in and of this world, both at the level of personal experience and individual and collective action. To understand in theory and in practice what it means to say, my true self is who I am on the street. So that's Malcolm's take on precepts. So it's kind of like using it pragmatically, using the precepts pragmatically to and taking one at a time each, each fortnight to, to examine and to apply to our own life and to share in the group and work through each precept in that way. Sounds really good. Okie dokie. Um, so um, we've been calling for expressions of interest in that. It starts sometime in 17th of March, it starts, and it's at, uh, starts at 7 p.m. and finishes 8.30. We'll do 25 minutes of meditation first and then a group discussion. Well, it's 12 o'clock, so we'll probably have to bring it up. So, so we, we finish um, on Sundays with uh, reciting the four practice principles, which Larry will hand out. And for you guys on Zoom, with the uh, four practice principles, um, ju just listen along. If you, if you know them and you want to recite them, mute your microphone and recite them along with us. For those of you who are new, the, um, the four practice principles are a restatement of the Four Noble Truths in a, in, a, in a more contemporary language that were developed by Joko and one of her students. So they're kind of like pointers to practice as well. The first two practice principles are about how we get caught up in dukkha, and the second two practice principles of how we release ourselves from dukkha. And we recite them three times. Caught in a self-centered dream, only suffering, holding to self-centered thoughts, exactly the dream, each moment Life as it is, the only teacher. Being just this moment, compassion's way. Caught in a self-centered dream, only suffering. Holding to self-centered thoughts, exactly the dream. Each moment, life as it is, the only teacher. Being just this moment, compassion's way. Caught in a self-centered dream, only suffering, holding to self-centered thoughts, exactly the dream. Each moment, life as it is, the only teacher, being just this moment, compassion's way. <laughs> 